0: Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, the show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess.
1: And I'm John.
0: And today we have episode two of season three in Career Corners in Microbiology. Today we will be discussing all about how to become a scientist. This is something I think is the most familiar when people think about scientists. Today, we're really talking about research scientists and all the different careers that you can get into from there. When we think about research scientists, we think about the white lab coats, sitting in the lab, playing with beakers, playing with chemicals, playing with plates, you know, the hands-on aspect. We're going to talk... A little bit about that research scientist we're also going to talk about on the flip side of that kind of the dry lab aspect and then we'll talk a little bit into clinical microbiology as well as these are three roles that are very much at the forefront of my mind when i think of that typical research scientist
1: yeah i agree completely
0: So let's start with the research scientists in the lab, in a microbiology lab. I think one of the things that I struggle with, and I see a lot of other people coming out of PhD or even coming out of school struggle with, is the aspect that when we're in school or when we are in our PhD or our master's program or wherever you are, everything has never been a true team sport. Even when you have team projects, you know, there's always that one person that kind of does it all and everyone just kind of floats together. But many of the things that we learn in school is you're going to do it yourself. You're going to do the whole thing on your own. And this was very true for me when I was in a PhD and a very true for a lot of other people where you are responsible from start to finish the entirety of the project. And this is not how things are done in at least in my experience in the workforce.
1: Like you said, you are part of a team. I kind of, I'm going to say that I think our perception of this is partially media's fault because whenever they view a scientist, they're always doing everything by themselves, right? They can do the jack of all trades. But in terms of the team, you know, you have scientists that would probably focus on things like maybe they're developing media if you're working in microbiology, or maybe you have someone that's doing Analysis of metabolites, like maybe they're specified with working with liquid chromatography. Even people that are doing things like lyophilization, like each one is a scientist.
0: And what is lyophilization?
1: Oh, so that's when you have your product and you dry it up in a manner to make it so it lasts longer. You don't want it to expire really quickly. And you can do that with chemicals, uh, sometimes... Uh, bits of vaccines or also when you're trying to make like a probiotic
0: so i think i think the point here is really like even if you're a scientist or you want to become a scientist you will have a specialization and that will be kind of your niche you're sort of the star or the expert in that particular task but you also are working with so many other people who also specialize in a specific task and together you can create a product And so this, again, doesn't have to be just microbiology. This is in all sorts of different aspects of sciences. Just to touch upon a couple other different roles that you might be in as a bench scientist, as a research scientist, you might be really, your project might have a lot of synbio, which is becoming really popular right now. So you might be a molecular biologist. At the entry levels in molecular biology, you might be what is called an RA, a research assistant. That sort of is a pre-PhD role. These are people that might have a master's or a bachelor's in the sciences, early career for sure. Then you might move up into more of a scientist, and there are different levels of scientists. Every company does it a little bit differently, and you may have to spend a different number of years as a scientist. And here is really where you start planning your own experiments or doing more of the advanced techniques than you would have done as an RA. So if we go back to that molecular biology example, you are no longer just responsible for extracting DNA or running PCRs or amplifying um, DNA is what a PCR does. But you might be responsible for cloning or uh, inserting plasmids or creating a genetically modified organism and kind of really getting more into that syn world. After you have a few years in a scientist, you might become a principal scientist, you might become a project manager, you might be able to make lateral moves into management and we're going to have a different podcast on that. So that is sort of the wet lab side of research scientists. And I think that is probably the typical way that people think about scientific careers in microbiology. Do you have anything else to add on that, John?
1: No, I think you summed it up pretty good. The only thing I would have to say is, if you're looking into it, it can be a little confusing because each company structures it slightly differently, but it all generally f- flows the same way. Well, you did talk a lot, a lot about it, but I wanted to sum up a little bit about the job description too. As a research scientist, you know, you said that there's experiments that you're doing, uh, maybe collecting samples, but really, like, what sets a scientist apart as opposed to the you know, research assistant would be you're planning experiments, analyzing data, and you can continue furthering your knowledge. So how do you become one? Well, many places require a minimum of degree of uh, master's degree, but this has changed a lot. Like before it was a PhD, and as soon as you got a PhD, you became a scientist. That's not really the case anymore. You can get your master's and also we're seeing more and more people with their bachelor's after years of work going up the ranks becoming a scientist but before we move on we talked to our friend Antonia Jong and asked her what was it like working in the field and any advice she could give
0: okay. Hoping to do drug discovery in the future, I got my master in pharmaceutical sciences. And the lab I was in was focused on using a lot of biochemical techniques, which shaped my career and led me to my current career working in the biochemistry department, doing drug discovery research. I like the creativity of learning a skill set and being able to apply or further improve it, which can potentially produce something new and novel. Cool. So that's sort of the wet lab things. We are going to shift a little bit into dry lab job opportunities now, which is what I do. It's a lot of bioinformatics and data analysis. And we've had a number of people actually on the podcast over the course of the last three years who fall into this track of bioinformatics data scientists. So we've had Dr. Michael Weinstein, who came from Zymo. He talked a lot about His creation of different packages. We've had Dr. Jeff Hannigan on the podcast as well. He works at Merck, a big pharmaceutical here in Boston. And we've talked to Dr. Stephen Bolaris, who works at Biorad out on the West Coast. And of course, there's me. I'm also a bioinformatician in a startup company. Oh, yeah, and we had Travis Gibson, who is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is also a bioinformatician. So, we've had quite a few bioinformaticians. I think each one of them we've asked a little bit about their advice to be coming into the field of bioinformatics. And we will pull some of those quotes and insert it in the pod so that you don't have to go chase those down. But I think what's really fun about bioinformatics and a really challenge is you're working with data, you're working on the computer, trying to gain insights from DNA in ways that have never been done before. It's a super exciting field and one that is very near and dear to my heart, but it can be really challenging. It's a very addictive process, I find it, to be, well, you got to learn to code. Most people learn either Python or R at the very minimum in order to become a data scientist and bioinformatics scientist. And there's lots of different ways to do bioinformatics for microbes as well. So the most common we talk about a lot on the podcast is the microbiome. And this is looking at the DNA of the microbes. The DNA of the microbes, you can do either the short region, which is the 16S ITS region for bacteria and fungal respectively. And this is really looking at just a short fragment of the organism to understand who is there. Then you can specialize in metagenomics. Metagenomics is understanding and assembling full genomes from a mishmash of samples. So the way I usually describe this is in a couple different ways. So I think of amplicon sequencing, the 16S-ITS gene that you're going to sequence from thousands of microbes. I think of this sort of like the fingerprinting database. What's that called that they use in crime shows all the time?
1: I think it's called APHIS, which is... Short for Automatic Fingerprint Identification System.
0: Right. So it's kind of like APHIS. This is what the uh, 16S-TS amplicon sequencing is. You're getting a very small fragment of the microbe. Just like a fingerprint, you're getting a very small fragment of a person. And from that, it is unique enough across each person that you can differentiate between different people. John and I have different fingerprints. So this is sort of what amplicon sequencing is. You can understand, you can differentiate your microbes, you can identify them to some extent, but you really don't know anything about them, you just have a fingerprint. A way I usually think of whole genome sequencing or metagenomics, which is the other aspect of DNA and bioinformatics, is sort of like a puzzle, where in whole genome sequencing, you might have one puzzle that you're trying to put together, and you do have an idea of what the end picture is going to look like, whereas metagenomics is really getting a thousand puzzles and just spreading them out on your floor and throwing away all the covers and then trying to assemble the thousands of puzzles together. Sounds fun, right?
1: Totally fun. Yeah. Sounds like a quick afternoon to me.
0: Exactly. It doesn't take that long at all. So, I mean, that's sort of bioinformatics microbiome on the DNA level, so on the genomics side. But there are other bioinformatic jobs as well in the field of microbiology. You can specialize in proteomics, which is the study of proteins, which is going to use a lot of computers, computer modeling, a lot of software there as well as metabolomics, which is on metabolites or sort of these things that are released by microbes. So that is bioinformatics. We have lots of different people that have come on the podcast giving advice on how to get into bioinformatics. I would say my advice to people looking to get into this sort of field is to go on the internet and find tutorials There are so many tutorials. The bioinformatics community is so open. There's so many places that you can go to learn about it. You're not going to learn a great deal in school. In my experience, I don't think I learned anything from school. Everything was from going on the internet, trying out tutorials, getting data, messing around with it, trying to figure out how to analyze the data and what insights I can draw from it, asking questions and going from there. So that's what I would say. We have a blog post on courses you can take in microbiome analysis. And we will link that in the show notes if you are interested.
1: I do have to say, I remember for a while, it was almost every night you were doing some sort of tutorial while you were trying to uh, learn bioinformatics.
0: Yeah, I spent so, so much time doing tutorials.
1: I always l- tried to look at your... Um, what you were doing i always felt overwhelmed just by the vast amount of data that you're sifting through if find it maybe i'm sounding a little aged but it it's so weird that like it's common to get terabytes of information
0: oh yeah it's it's pretty common these days yeah <laughs> so it's kind of crazy and i would say even i've been at my company now for less than a year and i think that i've created more data in this less than a year that I've been at my company than I did in my entire PhD, which was four and a half years. So it's just a crazy amount of data that you can shift through as a bioinformatics. So let's hear a little bit from Dr. Michael Weinstein about what he thinks is the best advice for people looking to get into bioinformatics.
1: So yeah, as far as advice goes, um, I actually, there's quite a few people who either already industry or were looking to get industry, but they hadn't had a lot of the formal training in bioinformatics and they felt like they were coming in at a disadvantage. But if somebody's willing to put in the time, you can actually get the training online for very little. I think one of the people who I helped get started, who became like a full-fledged industry bioinformatician from uh, basically scratch, uh, he was willing to put in the work, but honestly, the expense involved in there was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50 bucks, I think.
0: And now we're going to bring in Jeff Hannigan, who, again, works at Merck. And we asked him a little bit about his life as a bioinformatician as well.
2: The question of, you know, what is a computational biologist versus a bioinformatician, right?
0: <laughs> versus a machine learning expert. Right, versus right, who... <laughs> exactly.
2: Um, and you'll probably get a different answer with everyone you ask. I, the, the explanation I've kind of found to be helpful is, when, when I hear of bioinformatics, it generally is in more of a, um, lack of a better word, like service provider role, right? Like you are doing the informatics for someone else who's actually, you know, taking on the research project, if that makes sense. And then computational biologist is more the scientist really driving the research um, and pushing that forward. And the other way I kind of think about Computational biology is that you know instead of using a pipette, I use a computer <laughs> kind of thing, and so a lot of a lot of it is pretty similar, I think to what you're doing in molecular biology or microbiology or whatever you're just not necessarily at the bench you're you're using different approaches and you're using computational approaches to to find your answers
1: and Finally, we have Travis Gibson, an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and Brigham women's hospital who's going to tell us a little advice for those that are looking to maybe get into bioinformatics.
2: I I think the only thing I can say is that this data is really messy and you have to be really careful. And so when you're like, you know, making these presentations, just being really deliberate, I think that's the best word, sort of being really deliberate about what you're doing is the only advice I can give. Luck favors the prepared, right? Being deliberate lets you be in a position so that you're prepared. Once you know, you have the windfall of luck or that opportunity opens up. And that's true for all fields, but especially in the microbiome, the way I can relate it to that is that the data is so noisy and messy. And so if you just spend the time to actually look at the raw data to understand how it was collected, you know, you can be heads above the rest because just doing that properly uh, will get you really far.
0: So this brings us to sort of our third and final track in this Becoming a Scientist podcast.
1: What's the final track?
0: So we're going to talk a little bit about being a clinical laboratory technician, a clinical laboratory sciences, if you will. So both John and I have some experience in this. And we've also interviewed
1: Dr. Louis Plaza. That was a great conversation with him. His knowledge about clinical microbiology, like I can only wish to know as much as he does.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And he has a podcast all about this career. So we will not do it justice here for sure. And if you are interested, you should definitely go check out Let's Talk Micro.
1: Great.
0: And you'll learn an infinite amount of knowledge about medical laboratory sciences.
1: Just a quick plug. I like how he sets it up. He specifies one microbe and he talks about ways to identify it. It's really great.
0: Yeah. So if you're interested, definitely check that out. But I also wanted to mention that oftentimes when we think of clinical laboratory sciences, we think strictly humans. But this is not true. Clinical laboratory scientist extends into agriculture as well. You can be a veterinary medical microbiologist.
1: Right. And you had experience doing that in your undergrad, right?
0: I did. And it was a lot of fun. And I really think this is a lot of detective work. So if you love to sort of have a case, a mystery that you want to solve, this is a really interesting career choice to get into because you're basically tasked with an unknown specimen and you have to figure out what it is, how, what disease is it causing, what recommendation would you give to, for treatment?
1: Yeah, not only do you have to identify the microorganism, but if it's an infection, you have to identify what antibiotic can you give this person to treat
0: this infection? Or cow or horse or animal, dog, cat. True. And this is also where antibiotic resistant testing comes in, which is typically done on Mueller Hinton Augur, which we talk about a lot of times on the podcast. And uh, on our blog because it was created by Jane Hinton, who Jane Hinton is one of our black women microbiologists that we really like to highlight on the pod and website because she does not get enough credit, in my opinion.
1: She really doesn't.
0: No, and this is a auger that is used to save so many people's lives, really, because you're trying to figure out what antibiotic is going to clear an infection.
1: Right. This, this revolutionized medicine for all animals really once this came out
0: yeah so we're going to hear a little bit from lewis on being in the medical laboratory science field
1: so my advice is you know if you it's a great job there's always going to be work for us if you're doing this work in it you know try different areas of the lab to see what you like you know not everyone likes micro. You know, a lot of, a lot of techs that work say, in hematology or chemistry, they, they say, I don't like the smell. Micro always, it always smells in there. So find out what you like. I mean, sometimes you might be proficient in hematology. You might, you might like working with instruments, like in chemistry, doing that kind of work. So if you do the program, give yourself the chance to work in it, rotate around the areas to find out which one you like most.
0: Well, Microbial Nation, I do believe that is going to wrap it up for us on this episode where we talked all about becoming a scientist, mainly at the bench with the hands on, wearing lab coats,
1: strutting those disposable gloves.
0: And then we will come back again with another career corner where we're going to talk about science communication, and medical writing, as I think these things are very connected. So we'll talk a little bit about medical writing, a little bit about science communication. We'll talk about careers in science journalism as well. So if you're interested in that, don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any particular careers you would like us to cover in this season of Gals, you can DM us at Microbials on Instagram or Twitter. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. Or you can send us an email to microbials at gmail.com.
1: Like we mentioned before, we do have several blogs on our website that talk about these careers if you're interested in a little bit more information about them.
0: And we will link them below, the ones that we talked about in this show.
1: Remember, everyone, feed your microbes, feed your guts, make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye!